is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. The St. Paul Almanac book was created in 2005 and has since been released annually. The goal is to bring together the diverse community of St. Paul through literary arts. The Almanac is a meeting place for sharing stories and artwork of our community. This year, the St. Paul Almanac released their 11th volume, On a Collected Path. As part of a reading festival, authors have gathered at various venues throughout St. Paul to read their fabulous work. On Friday, April 14th, the shop Artista Bottega hosted these authors. And here they are, reading their amazing work. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. I'm Michael Kiesel-Moore, your host and MC. We are celebrating the launch of the new St. Paul Almanac. So really thrilled, Yay. yes. <laughs> we just recently had a big launch party and now we're launching this whole new series of readings. So I'm really glad you could be with us tonight. So thank you to um, uh, Artista Bodega. This is just an amazing space. So really happy to be here tonight. I just want to say, when I hold this book, our, our new um, issue, I feel like I'm holding in my hands the wealth of the city. Um, what this holds is our stories and our art, and who could ask for a greater wealth? It's just a really amazing book. So um, tonight, I think you'll really get a sense of what we hold in these pages. So uh, I want to introduce our first reader, uh, Chua Yang. and. Um, uh, I don't have a bio in the book for him, but I'll tell you a little bit of what I know uh, about Chua. Uh, he uh, grew up in St. Paul and continues to make St. Paul his home. And when I met him the other night, he told me about working in IT. And I would say uh, a better description is that when you hear his poetry, you hear the voice of a poet. Um, so I'm really thrilled to introduce for you Chua Yang. Please give him a warm welcome. Thank you. I'm trying to speak in here. Yeah, this is uh, my first time coming here too, and it's, it's a beautiful place, and I feel like I'm missing out a little bit. Um, my poem is uh, titled Refugee, 1984. Uh, the first part of my poem is uh, an, an excerpt from a, a Navajo creation story, and uh, written by Irvin Morris. Uh, it's on page 197, if you have your book. There, the locusts led them into the third world, which was white through a crooked opening. Again, scouts were sent out, and again, they found nothing. But in time, they discovered that this world was inhabited by grasshoppers. Irvin, Irvin Morse. Summer stretched two steel beams out into a vertical horizon. My head laid on one, the color of old tobacco, listening. Warmed by the sun, it soothed my ear, like a Hmong mother's ribcage, how it should. I waited to hear a heartbeat, the one that would tell me everything I needed to know. But there's a loud shimmering of translucent wings. I departed from the tracks, heavier with taconite pellets for my slingshot. Through tall grass and scattered trash, I found the path back to McDonough. Ahead of me, flying grasshoppers kept pace. Thank you so much. 
Our next reader is Greg Watson, and uh, his work has appeared in various literary journals and anthologies, and has been read by Garrison Keillor on the Writer's Almanac. His most recent collections are What Music Remains and All the World at Once, New and Selected Poems, both published by Northern <coughs> Press. He lives in St. Paul with his wife, Shalisa, and their almost unbearably beautiful daughter, Hadley. And those are my words. He didn't put them in here, but it's true. <laughs> so please welcome Greg Watson. Thank you. It's uh, an honor to be in this space. I, I feel kind of uh, behind the curve being a St. Paulite. I've never been down here before, so uh, it's a really neat uh, space. Um, I'd like to read the uh, poem in the Almanac, uh, which is on page 287. It's called At the Library. Warm sunlight on caramel-colored wood, the long stately tables scarred with the names of lovers and small crooked hearts. The sleepiness of afternoon dust, weightless in the air, as homeless men converse slump-shouldered over cups of black coffee, wool scarves and stocking caps in the middle of summer, beneath bleak fluorescent lights that give the skin a dull and greenish tinge as if we shared the same uncertain illness. Yet even the dust seems somehow orderly, the disarray of half-read magazines not quite random, floorboards aligned like yardsticks, the delicately chewed pencil tucked just so behind the homely schoolgirl's ear, the one who has been waiting for decades for you to arrive, for you to simply write her into existence. I'd like to try out um, one new poem because I always like to scare myself a little bit. <laughs> see, if, uh, see if it works. Um, this is another uh, St. Paul Place poem, so I think it uh, fits tonight. This is uh, in the newborn intensive care unit. It is best to speak softly here to make only the smallest of conversation with those in passing. A weary nod in the elevator is easily understood. Acknowledgement of the obvious and hope for transcendence, however fleeting. From our cool windowless room we stand watch, our tiny daughter breathing in a time signature we cannot follow, though it surrounds us, along with our seeming helplessness, learning what new words and phrases we can, the jargon of those who know which wire goes where, which numbers are good news and which elicit only a slightly somber exhalation. A gentle and unexpected humor rises between us, born of a weary necessity. Saltines and tumblers of chipped ice from the machine down the hall become an almost religious ritual. Though we pass the small silent chapel with its huddled congregation of candles glowing at all hours. Mostly we wait with the others, sleeping sporadically on fold-out cots, never sure which bleeps from the machines signal safety and which a possible storm just out of view. Thank you. Our next reader is Susan Kopad, and she lives across the street from St. Paul. Her debut young adult novel, Naming the Stars, was published by Curiosity Quills Press in 2016. 
Susan is a recent McKnight Artist Fellowship for Writers winner and has widely published poetry, short stories, and blogs, uh, which you can find at susankofat.com. So please give Susan a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I have two pieces in this year's almanac, which really excites me. One is a poem, and one is a prose piece. Um, the poem is absolutely true. The prose piece is based on a real thing. I'll show you that. And um, but the characters are fictional, so I kind of do roam around the world of prose and poetry. The first one is um, on page 250, if you're following along. Uh, it's called High Above St. Paul's Highways. High above St. Paul's Highways, red-tailed hawks perch on light posts every mile or so, waiting for an inattentive rodent to make one last mistake. I spot one, then another, and say, I never saw so many hawks 40 years ago when I was a kid. No one has ever replied to this comment. Not so much as a wow or that's interesting. The young people in the back seat, their eyes glued to their devices, their earbuds muting comments from the driver, don't see the hawks and don't hear me telling them to look up. Later on, I learned DDT decimated other raptors years ago, the bald eagle, peregrine falcon, and osprey, but not the red tails. There are about as many now as when I was young, as I rode along St. Paul's highways in the back seat of my parents' cars. I'm subject to other visions now. Senior discounts and special deals appear on my receipts, markdowns I didn't have to request, applied nonetheless. It's my graying hair, my crow's feet, I guess, revealing my age to the passing scene. And presto, senior savings materialize on my tab. And the red-tailed hawks, unseen in my youth, appear high above the highway. The second piece, if you're following along in your hymnal, it's on page 30, and um, so I'm going to pass around a picture of the real graffiti that this is based on. Um, it was written on the arm of a bench in Raspberry Island Park. I came across it, and I thought it was very interesting, so I'm going to pass this around so people can see it. The name of the piece is Heart is Not a Proper Noun. I love you, comma, with all my heart, someone had scrawled in Sharpie on a Raspberry Island park bench. I've always wanted you to know this. The capital, and here's how that looks. This is the visual, this is my slide. <laughs> the capital H in heart grabbed my attention. My pulse was in my throat. Who would write such a thing? I glanced to the other end of the small St. Paul Island Park and saw my girlfriend in the distance with her dog. She was heading to a bench where we'd agreed to meet after my run. Was she the author of the graffiti? Hastily scribbled on the armrest, my face flushed with rising passion. Heart is not a proper noun, I thought, nor is it the start of your sentence. There is no need to capitalize the word. I looked again in her direction, hoping that this message hadn't been left by her for me, 
I didn't really care that it was marring a public place in the pocket park, park beneath the Wabasha Ridge. Grammar, punctuation, and usage errors, on the other hand, seemed disrespectful, especially in a public place. I was afraid the rest of the message was worse than what I'd already seen. I read on, holding my breath. I've always wanted you to know this. Let's see. But I couldn't find the right time to. And for you geeks out, grammar geeks out there, you'll see that. Two, I spat. Should be two, T-O. I wished I had my own marker so I could make a correction. <laughs> days being with you, comma, are the best days ever. Missing period, no need for the comma. And what's with the sentence construction? Days with you are the best? Are the best, enough said. I just us to stay like this for a long period of time. You meant just want us to stay. I want you more than anything else. More than, I finally shouted, they had then, more than, T-H-E-N. I finally shouted, anyone, I want you more than anyone else. My girlfriend ran to my side, practically dragging her dog along. What were you shouting, she asked, a radiant look on her face. Did I hear you say, I want you more than anyone else? I jabbed my finger at the graffiti. Look at this. She handed me the dog's leash and leaned over me to read it. Oh my, she gushed. Did you write this? It's so romantic. Are you kidding, I moaned. It's terrible. For one thing, heart is not a proper noun, I began. The whole thing's riddled with errors. She snatched the dog's leash and headed across the bridge, leaving Raspberry Island and me in her wake. Wait, I shouted, hurrying to catch up. She gave me a look I couldn't decipher. What's wrong with you, I asked. You, she said. You're 100% wrong. We're through, and don't ask me whether I mean through, throw, through, or thorough. <laughs> My heart, lowercase h, sank. What happened? I didn't write that note, some other idiot did. That's just the point, she said. I wish you were that idiot. That's when she spoke the last words she'd ever say to me. Heart is a proper noun. Always has been, always will be. It says, in 43 years, to heed the device of her English teacher, proving it's never too late. Kudos to those special teachers in our lives. So, yes, say hello to Deb. Thank you, and thank you, Mrs. McClellan. I will find her, and I will give her <laughs> My piece is on page 253. This is Betty. My mother-in-law, she was a, we lost her last July at 99 and a half, two weeks after her 99 and a half birthday. And she loved the almanac and um, was an avid follower and came to readings. And as time went on, she, and she was a reader and she stopped reading. And so I took care of her the last year and um, I picked up the almanac and started reading to her. And she would, she just loved it. But she wouldn't read. And one day I left it there and went and made supper and I came back and sure enough, there she was reading it. And I was able to snap this photo. So that was, that was really sweet. And the other thing is just a few days before she passed, I found that the piece was accepted. 
And when I told her, she just gave me a big giggle. <laughs> so my piece is called Betty. She sits swaddled in the seat beside me, her signature bow propped atop her silver head, asking why I didn't tell her. I take a deep breath and gently say, I didn't want to upset you. She pauses, looking at the world sauntering by as we drive down snowing, her snowing. It doesn't matter the sleet of November slapping at the windshield. What does she see out her window of 98 years? She turns and says to me, I don't think I'm upsettable. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad you got to share De Betty with us. She yeah. sounds amazing. Thank you. Uh, our next uh, reader is Tom Collins. And Tom writes, yes, I am aware that there is a drink with my name on it. My story is real. No need for exaggeration. This is my first submission, and I hope it leads to more. So please welcome Tom Collins. Hi. I think everybody uh, has been able to hear. You don't have to really shout over anything. This is a, a prose piece. It's about a five-minute read, and I hope uh, you're interested all the way through. <laughs> the title of it is Cold Reality. I must have, I must have looked shell-shocked, a lifetime of emotional trauma culminating in an intense bipolar moment. Hospital, then jail, and my life changes forever, separating me from my family and the life I knew. A soup kitchen floor, that's my new bedroom. A repurposed jail mat, that's my new bed. 276 troubled human beings, these are my new roommates. The scent of homelessness in the air. Most people will tell you that they're homeless by choice, holding on to the illusion that they're in control of it all. My illusion was that I placed myself there as an adventurer looking to enrich his human experience. A reporter of sorts immersed, who immersed himself in this drama like a gonzo journalist. Any pain or fear I experienced was for a greater cause to be shared with the masses at some point in time, and that time is now. Staying at the shelter was a privilege, and I knew it. There's always someone who has it worse off than you, right? Well, the people who slept outside had it toughest. Sleeping rough, they called it. Others called it camping, like it's a rec recreational activity or something. Denial of their cold reality firmly in place. They are true survivors nonetheless. I grabbed my big camouflage backpack and stuffed my new life inside. I discovered a new meaning to the word essentials. Underwear, not essential. Multivitamins, not essential. Chapstick, not essential. I developed new muscles in my shoulders and back because that thing is heavy. I developed a new relationship with the police. They came to know me as, they came to know me because vagrancy is a, is a crime here in the United States. Think about that for a second. 
There's no rest for the homeless because there is a constant threat of harassment. So you better get good at being invisible. The general public is in denial on a grand scale. They don't want to see the homeless, so they instruct the police to move them out of sight. I was kicked out of Rice Park for taking a midday snooze in the grass. I would have, if I would have had a laptop at my side instead of a huge backpack, do you think I would have been asked to leave? Drab multi-layered clothing is the fashion on this catwalk. No bright colors to draw attention to yourself. Why do homeless people wear winter coats in the summertime? Because they can't store things in their closet. They're walking closets. Scrounging cigarette butts from public ashtrays is standard behavior. Building your own cigarettes, bumming cigarettes from strangers, standard. Newport 100s, the gold standard. And there's the wall of shame located on the parkway just across the street from the shelter. This is where the highest drama unfolds. Drug deals, fighting, puking, sieging, passing out, dying. Cops eye the situation closely, but for the most part, they leave their small change rackets to themselves and their slow motion suicides. I parked myself on the wall a few times because I'm an adventurer, not a mentally ill criminal. I'm an undercover reporter doing a piece on homelessness. Not exactly. I had five bucks in my pocket and I wanted to get a tiny bag of weed. Score. The dark cloud that hung over that wall was tangible, even on the brightest days. The last ounce of joy you had could be sucked out of you if you sat there long enough. Best to stay on the other side of the street. And the lines, my God, the lines, the waiting, the patience, the loss of patience, the arguing, the complaining, the general negativity, heavy-hearted people all around you. I had to become a Zen master not to lose my sanity any further. And somehow I did just that. Making friends with Mike made everything tolerable. Thank God for Mike. I met him the first week of my residency at the Dorothy Day Center. He was a tall, smirky, athletic-looking dude with short black hair and cocaine eyes carrying a bicycle seat. I thought, I could hang with this guy. He looks like a kindred. Sure enough, we had lunch a few times and bonded over cigarettes and bicycles. I had a bike too and we would have lunch and scrounge for cigarettes in the gated yard, and then take off on our bikes to get away from the insanity. Mike knew all the secret spots. Urban wilderness was all around. Who knew? Mike did. I was homeless for about three months. Fortunately, it was the summertime. An epic adventure for sure. I don't, know how, I don't know if Mike knows just how much he helped me. We shared our misery, we shared our hope. We fought hard and to find our way out, and at roughly the same time we did, never to see each other again. Thank you. I want to thank Nance for this wonderful space. I've been here a number of times and just happened to run into uh, 
Deb Brunyan, who uh, who solicited a story from me while while we were briefly talking, and, and and she told me about this project, and I said, yeah, that sounds great. Got a lot of stories in there, so hopefully we get to get them out again. Thank you. Reader is Mike Strand. And Mike uh, writes that he sustained a severe brain injury 1989 in a motor vehicle accident. He has been writing the Here and Now column in the Minnesota Brain Injury Alliance's quarterly publication, Mind Matters, since 1999. Please give a warm welcome to Mike Strand. When is now? I walk into the front room of my house to put on my shoes as I look forward to meeting my friends, John, Tim, and Howard at the Daily Grind Espresso Bar and Coffee Shop in Stillwater. On Saturday mornings, it is my regular haunt, and we do the New York Times Saturday crossword puzzle. Sure, we could do it each alone, and probably faster, but then we'd miss the camaraderie and the jocose cajolery that makes the morning bright. As I reach for my shoes, I notice the folder and textbook for my Thursday writing class sitting on the table by the door. I reorient myself. That's right. It's Thursday morning, and I have to go to my creative writing class. I sustained a severe brain injury when I was hit by a semi-truck 25 years ago. Every day, I struggle with numerous residual deficits, of which memory deficits play a considerable role. To get through the day, I have a host of compensation strategies I've developed. I've developed this trick for making sure to make it wherever I need to be, along with whatever I need to bring. I put what I need to bring with me next on the table by the door. I make it a habit to always look at the table to see if anything is there. If something is there, then I know that that is what I'm doing next. This works for me because I don't have a problem remembering why I put things on the table. But when I'm rushing out the door to go someplace, I frequently am thinking about the trip, and then I forget to bring what I need to bring. And another benefit is to remind me where I'm going next. I usually know when, when I'm supposed to be where, but the now is ever-changing. I'm trapped in this now, and the rest of the world hurtles by me. It's like I'm sitting in a train car and can only see to the side, never ahead, never behind. It might seem exhilarating, literally embracing whatever the now hands to you, but it's actually a colossal pain in the butt. <laughs> I soften it up for small ears. <laughs> there is no point in wallowing in the missed appointments of other days. Acknowledge and forge ahead. Today is not one of those days. Today I have coolly and deftly sidestepped a catastrophe. My scheme has worked. My life is smooth. I hop in my truck and head off to class. As I pull onto the freeway, I notice that I'm about an hour early for class. Oops, I'm still on coffee shop time. It occurs to me that I have not read the next assignment, and I calmly appreciate the serendipitous consequence of airheadedly thinking it was Saturday. I now have time to read the assignment. I also appreciate the 11.30 a.m. class time, <clears throat> as it allows me to avoid rush hour traffic, which, more than just an inconvenience, is unsafe for me, as my reaction time isn't that good. I smile. That is not a problem I need to worry about this time. I exit off the freeway and head into downtown Minneapolis. Something isn't right. There's almost no traffic. 
Is this a holiday? No, that can't be, not on a Thursday. Maybe there was another 9-11 type event. I can't handle the distraction of a radio when I drive. Having the radio on is, is, is as if someone is sitting beside me tapping on my shoulder saying, hey, hey, hey. With no radio, if the Russians attack, I won't know about it until I see a mushroom cloud. <laughs> this thought makes me smile as I realize that my Cold War mentality dates me. I pull into the parking ramp, pay my five bucks and park. Score! I'm using that word too. <laughs> I get rock star parking. Today is a good day. And then my slow mental processing puts it all together and heavy realization surges through me like an overpressure wave. Temporal vertigo. This is not Thursday. This is, in fact, Saturday. I do not have a writing class on Thursday morning in Minneapolis. I have a lit class Thursday night in St. Paul. I had absentmindedly left my homework out last night. The contrast is startling. Instantly, I have gone from mastery of my world to the victim of a Harlequin's mad dream. No, 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 I scream silently. Not again, not still, this is so hard and I am so tired. The accumulated fatigue of a 30 year struggle combines and I don't want to be brain injured anymore. Thank you, Mike, that was really wonderful. I hope we see more of you in your work in the coming years. So I am actually gonna be your last reader tonight. Uh, there's one person I forgot to thank, and that was David Stein, who organized this whole event. He's not here tonight, but he did a lot of the work that made this happen. And uh, one thing he did is he asked if I could be one of the readers tonight. So <laughs> we will end with yours truly. And like Greg, I want to try out a new poem that I have never read out loud ever before. And it's about St. Paul. So I will give you the poem called The Opposite of War. And it begins with an epigraph by poet Michael Longley. The opposite of war is not so much peace as civilization. The opposite of war is my neighborhood, where baristas serve coffee to tired and harried strangers with the dignity of sleek waiters at the St. Paul Hotel, where a man plays the guitar with friends, singing favorite Beatles songs to all who will hear, where a scholar sitting by himself deciphers lines of Homer as if all the questions of the world will be answered by this vital work. This, the opposite of war is a classroom where a high school teacher makes sure that when the little girl from Sudan enters the classroom, even if there is not a desk, she will get something to sit on and something to write with. A bus driver who rejoices that the next person entering the bus does not yell at her. A cook in a Middle Eastern deli whose first home was not America and wonders how long he will be able to stay far from a world at war. The opposite of war is a poetry reading where the poets give voice to their lives and hold humanity in the cups of their hands as if it is precious and worth preserving. Thank you.
So then I will conclude with my poem that's in this book, which is called The Lost Language. The Lost Language. Oh, if you're following along, it's page 46. I dream of finding a lost language, a language that has no words for war or any kind of violence a human can make against another. This old forgotten language will be wise in the use of gender, not binary. This language won't even have the word for binary. And this will be a language that has more words for love than the colors of large box of crayons, each word a new shade of care, and so vast that dictionaries fill to the brim with every different hue, and all the colors of the human clan will be described by those words of love. For when you speak of your fellow beings with love, how could you ever harm one if we cannot find this long lost language? Then let us make it now. Thank you. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.